Hi, this is Jeremy Gilbert from ACFM, and this is one of our series of microdoses, uh, extra bits to supplement the main episode. This is a supplement to our episode about consciousness raising. And what this is, is about 20 minutes or so of us discussing the history of of ideas of consciousness in the radical political tradition. So we're talking specifically about ideas of political consciousness and ideology, um, going back to the writings of Marx in the mid-19th century. Uh, What we don't get into here really is the concept of consciousness from a strictly philosophical or scientific perspective, but it is worth noting that the very nature and origin of of consciousness remain extremely uh, mysterious and contentious subjects within both those fields. Um, But that's not what we're concerned with here. What we're concerned with here is really the history of theories of ideology and political consciousness going back, as I say, to Marx's writings in the mid-19th century. I think before we start, um, for some people's benefit, it's probably worth me explaining a couple of the terms that we use here. Um, I use the term bourgeois several times, and if you don't know, uh, that is a term used by Marx from the, in the 19th century. And the bourgeois, bourgeois essentially means capitalist. The bourgeoisie were the um, capitalist class in Marx's times. I mean, it literally means suburban or suburbanites, and that goes back to the time when the sort of you know the capitalist class of Paris uh, lived in sort of large houses around the outskirts of the city. Um, you know, the, the geography of Paris changed a lot after that, but that's kind of what it means. And we talk a lot about, we use this word ideology a lot, uh, which just in this sense generally refers to a sort of way of thinking about the world, a worldview, a systematic set of ways of perceiving the world um, that tend to represent the interests of some particular social group or other. Um, okay, I think that's all the terms that might need explaining for this one. Uh, I hope some people find it useful. There you go. I mean, the idea of consciousness goes back arguably hundreds of years, but in these political terms, uh, you're really talking about a history that begins with Marx uh, uh, writing about, you know, the way in which capitalism reproduces itself, indeed, by by presenting itself as just sort of natural and inevitable and ahistorical. And Marx differentiates uh, what the kind of false consciousness, as he puts it, or he puts it in translation, um, that is produced by bourgeois ideology, which tries to naturalise you know, capitalist social relations. And he, con- he counterposes that. Now, exactly what he's counterposing that to is a bit vague at times, actually. So sometimes it seems to be that Marx is saying he has a kind of scientific method which can tell us the truth of social relations, um, as opposed to kind of bourgeois ideology. Um, sometimes it seems to be a bit more complicated than that. But broadly speaking, he's, he's counterposing truth to the sort of false consciousness which is inculcated by bourgeois ideology. And false consciousness is also counterposed, as well as being counterposed to sort of some sort of notion of objective truth, it's also counterposed to class consciousness. And class consciousness is what happens when members of the working class or uh, you know, members of other classes who are allied to them through being part of the socialist movement and the labour movement acquire a sense of the true nature of their position in the world and their position in the social world and their position in social power relationships and their position in history as, as you know, people whose conditions are produced by contingent historical circumstances and which could be changed. But then Marx doesn't really develop that notion of class consciousness that much. Um, it gets really developed by a guy called uh, Georgi Lukács, a Hungarian co- communist writer in the early 20th century. 
and his big book is History and Class Consciousness. He makes this famous distinction between the working class merely existing as a class in itself, as a sort of objective reality, and, and it becoming a class for itself, like acquiring a sense of its own you know, collective capacities you know, for revolution and the pursuit of its own interests. And Dukacs has this really... Um, you know, he has this in some ways quite strange, in some ways very insightful sort of position that actually, well, the workers, the working class, because of their position in capitalist social relations, because they're kind of at the sharp end of capitalism, they can really sort of see and understand and grasp the truth of social reality under capitalism in a way that the bourgeois just can't. You know, they're just always trapped inside their own sort of mythical conceptions about how the way the world works. And it's an idea that gets developed by later thinkers who are trying to think about, well, what is the nature of sort of ideology? Well, how do we uh, approach it uh, from a radical perspective? And still probably I think the most important and the most useful thinker uh, for thinking through those issues is Gramsci, Antonio Gramsci, the great Italian sort of communist leader and theorist and sort of... Uh, commentator and Gramsci has this notion of common sense the idea that what happens in a particular society a particular culture is that particular sets of ideas come to be seen as kind of normal and natural and inevitable by most of the population so the idea that immigrants are taking our jobs and that's why wages are going down or unemployment is going up becomes part of the common sense of sort of late capitalist culture from the 70s onwards would be an example and you know, Mark and I would always have, would have these exchanges where he would say capitalist realism, I would say neoliberal common sense, and I would insist on con- continuing to use that phrase because, uh, in some ways, I think it is a slightly more it is a more sort of subtle concept because Gramsci always stresses the fact that common sense isn't just one totally coherent picture of the world, and he also stresses the fact that common sense always contains within it a kernel uh, of what he calls good sense. And good sense is like a kind of accurate picture of the world. So on an issue like immigration, well, you know, the common sense, the right that people might be giving people a kind of false consciousness about the world is this idea that our immigrants are taking their jobs and that's why that's why kind of wages are going down or unemployment is going up. But on the other hand, the kernel of good sense is, well, I mean, to some extent, immigration is mainly happening because someone somewhere thinks it's going to lower wages because it's not happening just for the benefit of either the immigrants or uh, the people they're coming to live alongside because the decisions about who goes to live where are mainly being made by capital and its agents. So there's a kernel of good sense that, well, actually, decisions are being made about the composition of communities and flows of people and labour in somebody else's interest and that what you have to do is you have politically is you have to sort of attack that you have to sort of you know attack the bits that are just false consciousness and you have to find the bits that have a kernel of truth and kind of you know create a different story that connects up the the good sense with a, a kind of radical understanding of the world and now the thing is that once you get into that kind of terrain, the idea that well, what you're doing is you're changing people's consciousness, uh, it starts to sound like a slightly crude like version of what you're actually trying to do, which is more really kind of engaging with people's lived reality and their interpretations of it in quite a detailed and subtle way. And I think that's partly why, you know, when people like on the English speaking left really started reading Gramsci in the 70s, then they started to move away from that kind of false consciousness idea of ideology and they started to really think that maybe consciousness raising, the idea of just raising people's consciousness was like a bit of a crude idea, a bit of a simplistic idea. 
I mean, probably the greatest sort of theorist of ideology in that Lukacian tradition is the French theorist Louis Althusser. And Althusser, again, has these two... Yeah, he does most of his work in the 60s, and, but there's sort of two slightly different conceptions of ideology, even in his fam most famous essay about ideology. And one is that ideology is sort of false consciousness, it, 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 that it involves what he calls misrecognition. It, the, the, the person misrecognises their position in the social world. So you think you're an autonomous consumer, really you're an exploited worker. And so the job of like scientific Marxism is to show you the scientific truth of reality. But then he has a slightly different conception, which, which is a bit more subtle, and it's that the function of ideology is actually institutionally to create what he calls a subject, you know, create a subject position for you, create a position from which you can act. So indeed, it becomes the case that it's institutionally true that you have no real power to kind of, you know, do anything effective in the world as an actor, that it's only as a consumer that you actually have any agency, that you, you know, you can't choose anything about your work, but you can at least choose what, you know, colour jacket to buy or what cake to eat. Uh, and in some ways, again, they sort of it comes back to some of the tensions in the idea of consciousness raising. Like, well, is it is it is consciousness raising just putting correct ideas in people's heads, or is it actually enabling people to sort of, um, you know, to in some ways to operationalize the the insights they might already have into the nature of social reality in a way which which you know feels empowering and effective. One of the things that comes out or, or when, when when you lay that 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 history out, one of the things that's sort of not not sort of dealt with is, or, or one of the things it reveals about um, the problem of consciousness raising, the way people might think about it is, you know, what is the role of uh, of those who already have raised consciousness? What is the role of the of the vanguard? You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. And so that's where it, it, it sort of connects to things such as political education. You know, in the UK at the moment, there's a big there's lots of people talking about political education and the need, the need to develop political education and people react against it in, in, in this idea that there are a set of pre-conceived ideas that need to be sort of delivered to those who don't have them. Do you know what I mean? So that's where something like consciousness raising might butt up against another history, a related history, something like, like Paolo Freire's um, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, you know. Yeah, right, right. Which is, which is all about, you know... So this is a model of education that, that develops, gets developed um, by, by Paulo Freire in in Brazil in the fifties, perhaps sixties, fifties and early sixties, fifties and early sixties. You know, and it's basically he's he's going to teach he's going to teach literacy to to Brazilian peasants, and he's going to teach him literacy to Brazilian peasants because there's a there's a um, literacy qualification for voting, etc. Right, uh, and but he develops all of these techniques of how you get people. You know how do you how do you give people the confidence, uh, uh, um, the confidence and the, the abilities to look, you know, to to read and then find out about the world, etc. And it's all about you know you start with their problems. His big concern is like you know how do we how do we stop this banking model of education where these these are the ideas and the role of an educator is to dump them in somebody's head, you know, and it's it's and it's this thing about well you it's just you need to overcome the hierarchy. Right, you need to overcome the hierarchy, and the only way you can do that is by starting with people's everyday lives and everyday problems, because they are always you are always the expert in your own life. Do you know what I mean? Or you're always the expert in your own your own problems and experiences. 
That doesn't mean, you know, you don't need to connect with other people's expertise. You know, the, the educator might have expertise about some of the structural causes of those problems. But, you know, it's a way to try to, uh, uh, to, to, to do away with the, with the hierarchical function. And that probably butts up with, other, uh, like, another tradition, which would be Felix Guattari's conception of group analysis, which I think is very similar to, to consciousness raising. Uh, yeah, which I is, think it is. Yeah. Which is like a more psychoanalytic, schizoanalytic practice in which the group dynamics, the dynamics of the group and trying to overcome the dynamics that you'd fall into become a central focus for discussion. You know, and you'd, and, you know, lit- it was, you know, he used to practice this in a, in a psychiatric institution dealing with uh, schizophrenic patients, you know, and they would, they would, you know, they would deliberately make everybody do the roles and jobs of everybody else in order to try and break down the barriers and the hierarchies that, that, that come into it. Now, I think that's really important, and it reminds me of the thing, you know, stupid, I left out of that history. It's probably the most important thing is the Leninist intervention. So the, the big, Lenin's big break with the, the, the Marxist socialist movement and tradition that had built up, up to that point is he comes to the conclusion that contrary to what most socialists think, the working class are never going to achieve truly revolutionary consciousness by themselves. They're never going to get to the point, they're only ever going to achieve what he calls trade union consciousness, they're just wanting higher wages and better public services. They're never going to realise that they need to overturn capitalism. And he thinks the only way you can actually get that revolutionary consciousness to them is you have a professional elite of highly trained kind of revolutionary uh, cadres who then sort of take, you know, who will, you know, will educate the people but will also lead them and will always be sort of ahead of them. And that forms the basis for the idea of the vanguard party. Uh, and, I mean, it has to be said to some extent, I would say the debates Lenin has with other people who disagree with him, you know, within the socialist sort of movement in Russia, they do somewhat echo debates that Marx has with the anarchist leader uh, Mikhail Bakunin in the 1870s when, because, you know, I mean, you got to say, I mean, people always want to let Marx off the hook for this. And I think, but, you know, if you get into the Communist Manifesto, he does have this Jacobin model of revolution that you're going to take over the state, you're going to have a strong centralised authority, you're going to take control of the media, you know, you're not going to brook any opposition for a while while you implement the dictatorship of the proletariat. And then some point after that, you might have something like democracy. And the anarchists like Bakunin from straight up at the start saying, well, that's not going to work. That's just going to produce a kind of totalitarian bureaucracy. And then Lenin has similar arguments with people in the 1910s, 19... And, you know, and, and well, we see what happens. And then the Maoists are really committed to a similar model. Gramsci is sort of, sort of trying to... He doesn't want to say Lenin is wrong, but he's developing a kind of coming back to the idea of the mass party. But then people like Freire and Guattari are very much reacting against that. They're very much reacting, I think, to the realisation that, well, if you have this idea of revolutionary consciousness as the thing that you bring to the masses from outside as a kind of revolutionary elite, you just end up with this kind of totalitarian... Uh, situation and again in the 70s you know Althusser had been you know was kind of loyal member of the basically Stalinist sympathizing French Communist Party and people like Guattari were sort of reacting against him and and so there's and, and all the way through there's always this dynamics so you're right and this is bringing up to contemporary debates around political education there's always this question well how do you deal with the fact that well I mean, sometimes, yeah, there is just a load of shit people just don't know. There's a load of stuff that people just don't know. They need to be told by someone who does know. 
And yet, if you reproduce that, if you go too far in reproducing that model, you just end up with elitist hierarchy. And I think, I think my understanding of the way in which the, the idea of the consciousness raising group, the idea of having a group whose purpose is consciousness raising, as I understand it, it is based ideally on an awareness that even if you are one of the people who knows a lot of stuff, you know, might read all the books, might know a lot of stuff other people don't don't know, that you are aware that you nonetheless will continually by be sort of conditioned and sort of affected by, you know, patriarchy or bourgeois ideology or whatever it is, and that you also need help in kind of constantly, to some extent, you know, going beyond it. And that's, you know, my experience of the, when we've a couple of times we've done at events, we've done these sort of quote unquote consciousness raisings or workshops sort of led by you two, but led by Kieran Nadia, um, where, you know, we basically get a bunch of people and we all talk about who are at the event and we all talk about certain aspects of our lives and how they relate to neoliberal capitalism. And, I mean, you know, my experience of those is, you know, is quite powerful, is that even though I know, you know, I'm a sort of, you know, on some levels, on some measures, I'm a sort of world expert on a lot of this stuff. And I'm in the room with people, you know, who are not, then nonetheless, the that experience of that form of engagement, you know, affect me sort of affectively sort of in, in my body, you know, in, in my kind of emotional state in a, in a way which seems really important. And it seems like, well, and I think this is one, for me, this is one of the kind of basic insights of sort of the acid communist, acid communist project, actually, or, or, you know, what I've sometimes called psychedelic socialism is that, well, you can sort of know theoretically, conceptually, that, you know, it, it's a myth to think of yourself as a sort of individual subject in constant competition with others. But we, but also, we all know that the, the, the vast apparatus of, you know, capitalist society is constantly trying to make us feel like that all the time. So it's just naive to think you can just kind of liberate yourself from that sense of yourself just by sort of knowing something that we all need to engage in, in, in types of technique and practice which can enable us to feel, to really feel differently than that. And I, to me, I, my understanding of the idea of the consciousness raising groups, at least in the liberation movements, like women's liberation and gay liberation, is that that's part of the point of it. This show is brought to you by Navara Media. To find articles, videos and more audio content like this, head to navaramedia.com. If you particularly enjoyed this podcast and would encourage others to listen to it, why not head to iTunes? And as well as subscribing, leave us a review. Navarro Media can only exist thanks to subscribers and supporters. If you have the means, please consider subscribing at support.navaramedia.com. As well as helping us continue to produce regular content, subscribers will also receive priority access to events as well as promotions throughout the year. For regular updates, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Navarro Media. Media for a different politics.